Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life, a podcast about living with more joy, energy, and flow. We strive to help you create a healthier life from a wide variety of perspectives. We want you to glean some useful nuggets from each episode to help you be more in the flow with ease, joy, and purpose. So if you feel your life could be more fulfilling, healthy, and joyful, you're in the right place. Another friend that I lost touch with over the years. Dr. Rodriguez is a professor of communication studies at Cal State Long Beach. Our mutual friend, Dr. Beverly Marks Taub, told me about the research Jose has been doing on the relationship between fear and fake news, and I thought it would make a great podcast episode. Greetings, Dr. Jose Rodriguez. How are you today? Oh, greetings. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I think our listeners will find this to be an interesting topic. So I'd like you to share a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this line of work. Take it away. Well, awesome. Thank you. I became interested in this line of work because I love trying to understand why people do what they do and how people come to be who they are. So I stumbled onto this area of study, which is basically persuasion mm-hmm. and looking at how people make decisions, how people arrive at conclusions, what they think about, how they feel, how they change. And um, all those dynamics have really been a passion of mine throughout my life. So when I went to get my doctorate at Michigan State, I joined, uh, you know, in partnership with a professor who was doing research on uh, fear and other kinds of persuasive strategies. And that's how it started. It's uh, It's been an interesting journey, and that's connected to the research that I've been doing over the last 20 years. Hmm. So that's I find that interesting. Fear as a pers pers excuse me. <laughs> Fear as a persuasive strategy. Exactly. Exactly. So when I think about research, uh, believe it or not, I actually think about Aristotle and, in particular, his definition, his classic definition of rhetoric, and he said that rhetoric is the process of discovering in any particular situation, all the available means of persuasion. And I like this idea Hmm. that there are many ways to persuade, and it's important to understand how persuasion works and the power of messages to move people to action. Ooh. Awesome. Yes, I I really want to hear this because this is something I don't know that much about. I'm very excited to learn this. Awesome. 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 I wanted to kind of share this uh, segment here and give you a little flavor in Spanish. Uh, Jose Martí, the apostle of the Cuban revolution against Spain, put it this way. Mi verso al valiente agrada. Mi verso breve y sincero es del vigor del acero con que se funde la espada. Translation, my Mm -hmm. verse to the valiant is pleasing. My verse, brief and sincere, is made from the vigor of steel 
which forges the sword. Hmm. Hmm. You can hear the mic drop at this point because Marti just crushed it, right? He's <laughs> speaking of the power of persuasion. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So let me let me talk about my research. My research is on persuasion. Basically, we're talking about getting people to change how they think, how they feel, how they behave. And there are a variety of studies that I could speak about, but I'd like to share this focus on fear appeals. Mm-hmm. Fear appeals are a means of persuasion. That is, we are uh, persuading people by scaring them, by, by inducing fear. Fear appeals are messages or images that cause people to feel afraid because they see a threat that is harmful to them. And think about your basic campaign to reduce drunk driving at a local high school by parking a wrecked car in front of campus <laughs> and you get the picture. In this example, right, you see mm-hmm. the threat, car accident, and you want to avoid the threat by driving sober or finding a designated driver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you say... And I may be totally off here, but that that persuasion by fear is more manipulative than other types of persuasion. It it can be. Um, overall, fear tends to be an appeal to emotions, mm. and those appeals can be uh, created with the intent to manipulate or with the intent to create positive affirming behavior. So let's look at the example of, you know, drunk driving Mm -hmm. and the wrecked car in front of the high school campus. I think the intent behind that is to save lives. Right. To to help people understand, hey, this could happen to you and there are things that you can do to prevent this tragedy from happening in your life. And one of the things that you can do is one, not drink and drive or choose a designated driver. So I think the intent behind the message is central, not so much the particular appeal. Okay. Okay. Would would you say though that behind or the, let's see, how do I want to say this? When you're trying to persuade someone, aren't you hooking into their emotions or, or is it not, or not always? Uh, not always, not always. Sometimes uh, persuasion can be very logical, very rational. Um, so trying to persuade somebody by reasoned action or by logical argument or by evidence or by statistics, um, you know, by reason. So that type of persuasion can be very, you know, rational, I guess there's no other way to say it. And and that would not necessarily be an appeal to emotions, but many times uh, persuasive campaigns or uh, persuasive messages have an emotional component because that's important. Uh, the bottom line is people make decisions based on, on emotion, based on feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's important to tap into those because you want people to uh, to be moved by your message, to be persuaded by your content. Um, and uh, it's important to appeal to their, you know, sense of emotion or sensations or mm-hmm. feelings. So there's mm-hmm. no doubt, no doubt that it's, it's a combination. 
but it isn't always uh, a manipulative ploy. Uh, it can be used with the intent of creating positive, productive consequences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I was thinking of marketing when I said that. You know, marketing tends to try to appeal to your emotions to get you to get you hooked into buying something or doing something. Yeah, I think that there is um, some, you know, marketing that that targets uh, emotion uh, or a feeling. Um, And I think a a lot of brands go toward, uh, you know, inducing a feeling. I guess my my distinction is I don't think that it's always or necessarily or even primarily uh, fear based when it's when we're talking about marketing. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't that that fear is used uh, too much. I think fear tends to be used more in public service announcements. When I think about those classic campaigns, uh, this is your brain, mm-hmm. this is your on drug, <laughs> any questions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So those kinds of, of messages uh, tend to be fear-based uh, because there is correctly the assumption that when people are afraid they're much more likely to pay attention to say oh my gosh this could happen to me mm-hmm. and as a result uh maybe more likely to to change uh their behavior mm-hmm. one of the things that comes to me is uh every fall when uh you see all these ads to get your influenza vaccine <laughs> which from the research i've done it doesn't work that well. Um, so, but, but, you know, all this fear of, you know, you're, you could, you could die or you could be really sick if you don't get this. And it's really important to go get your flu shot. Correct. Correct. Yes. And then notice how that example is, is a really good example of a public service announcement focusing on a health issue. So if you look at those two components, you will see that a lot of fear-based messages are connected with public service announcement mm-hmm. that have a health-oriented message or intent. And, and you're right. Uh, I think that there is a lot of, uh, in that particular example, there's a lot of um, heightened messaging around creating a sense of fear that will prompt you to, uh, you know, take action to take your, you know, your shot or whatever it is that, that they're, that they're promoting. And, and again, you know, you could argue, well, based on the research that you've done, that for you is not the best course of action, but Mm -hmm. notice that you right? And in this example, are taking that message, seeing the fear-based component, and then stopping, reflecting, thinking, and maybe making another choice, which is something I was going to get onto later, but you've stole a bit of my thunder, which is okay. (laughs) That's the way to go. Yeah. (laughs) We're in the flow. Let's just take that 
and later you can go into into the uh, details. Yeah, so let me let me um, talk about uh, a little bit about the the study, and this will give you some context of what we've been talking about. In our study, we looked at uh, fear arousing content messages about wearing bicycle helmets, alcohol mm -hmm. consumption, and tetanus vaccination. Mm -hmm. So we designed messages in high a high fear condition and a low fear condition. Okay. In the high fear message, people saw that they might die or sustain significant injuries. For example, in the bicycle helmet condition, people saw very graphic uh, images of a person with a broken skull in a hospital room. In mm -hmm. the other condition, people saw more moderate threats like a chipped tooth or a, a, a very small scrape on the knee. And that gives you a sense, one, notice that the content was around health-related issues, public mm -hmm. service announcements, and we ran the experiment with over 500 participants. So mm -hmm. here's what we found. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Overall, we found that people uh, felt afraid. When they felt afraid, they changed their attitudes. People in the high fear condition changed their attitudes much more than people in the low fear condition. So the bottom line is fear is persuasive. The power of fear is palpable. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So how does this relate then to fake news? Well, one of the things, that, which is an excellent question, uh, our analysis showed that highly fearful messages were perceived as high quality arguments. Basically, people saw highly fearful messages as better arguments. So when we looked at the data, we saw that this is probably a special case of what we call intense language. And we speculate that this result is related to how intense messages are seen as persuasive. Research shows that intense messages are more persuasive than messages low in intensity because they're vivid, they're specific. Um, people perceive it as more informative than messages with low in intensity. So, uh, essentially, the vividness, the specificity seems to clarify the position that's being advocated, and it leads to perceptions of better argument quality. And this clarity or this intensity of the message seems to help people retain it and create kind of a new sense of belonging with the new information and creates attitude change. So that's the mechanisms for how it works. And I want to look at a couple of things here that relate to your question. Uh, I think that the results have important implications for how we process information. Mm -hmm. We tend to process information in two ways. One is called heuristic, and that's just short and sweet. For example, we might use very simple decision rules like a message is scary, so I think it's a better, a better argument or very simple thinking um, that we say the high fear message is the best message, even though it's not, because high fear does not mean high quality. But the right. problem is that people tend to be cognitive misers. We don't want to put a lot of effort into our thinking. We get bored. 
you know, we want to move on. We get tired. We have short attention spans. We don't want to think too much or too hard. So that becomes a problem with fear because fear works when we don't think. But mm. there's another option. And the second type of thinking is called central processing or what we sometimes call critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And here, what you just did with the, um, you know, with the example of the flu vaccination, you know, here people evaluate evidence. They think, they compare, they look at data, they reflect, they question, they look at different points of view. And this is the kind of thinking that we learn about in college. The truth is that this type of thinking is difficult, though. It takes effort. So we need to work at it. And that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, you said so a high, high fear message people find more informative. Would you say that um, people feel or, or, or they have a sense that it's more truthful? There's more truth to it than something that um, it has a low fear base? It captures attention. That mm. big issue here, right? So mm-hmm. notice, live in an ocean of messages. We're bombarded with all sorts of content continuously. So when there's a fear-based message, it captures your attention. It's vivid. It's powerful. It's evocative. It's attention-getting because it is a message that our central nervous system interprets as crucial to survival. Mm-hmm. So if you think that a message is crucial to survival, you're going to pay attention to that message. You're going to remember that message. You're going to say, hmm, I better listen here. I better pay attention because the consequences threat might be a problem and I want to avoid that problem for safety, for the betterment of my health, for all kinds of positive reasons that are going to be helpful to me. So I'm going to pay attention. Mm -hmm. I think I'm starting to see how this is related to fake news. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. So so one of the things that, that we see here um, uh, in trying to uh, connect it to uh, fake news is some fake news, and in fact, a lot of fake news, I would argue, has fear arousing content. And Mm -hmm. I could give a lot of examples, but I'll just give you one. Okay. The one example that pops into my mind is the Bowling Green Massacre. Now, we know that the Bowling Green Massacre never occurred. But that message of an alleged Bowling Green massacre is a message that has fear arousing content. Why? Because there is this alleged massacre that occurred, some kind of violence, something bad happened. So we pay attention to that and we think, oh my gosh, something bad happened. I need to be afraid. Here's another one of those things, another terrorist attack or another mass shooting. Danger, 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 danger. And people are hyper aware and hyper vigilant about those messages because they trigger a response 
of either fight, flight, or freeze, right? Those very mm-hmm. basic uh, primitive responses that are essential to our survival. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just the isness of how we have evolved as human beings to help ourselves survive as a species. So when those um, uh, pieces of uh, evidence are present, right, we stop, we we freeze, we want to fight, we know that we need to know better. We need to understand that we can pause, reflect, and choose and look at other evidence. You know, by looking at other evidence, we can determine the quality or the validity of the information. One of the things that I talk about is watching different news stories, reading different articles, tuning into alternative podcasts, such as Keeping It Real, right? Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And other, right, credible sources, uh, looking at newspapers from multiple perspectives, looking at credible um, resources, looking at publications that pride themselves on neutrality. We can explore outlets, for example, in other parts of the world to get an international perspective. Mm-hmm. In all these ways, we become better users of information and forego the temptation to think in simple terms, especially when we're afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give a plug for my favorite news magazine, which I, I just get on my iPad now. I don't, I, I don't get a hard copy, but my mother, who is an avid reader, always up until she died, um, she turned me on to The Week. And I really like it because it has like the best columns from the United States, best columns from Europe. Each topic that they talk about um, gives uh, perspectives from other journalists, other people in the world, pros and cons. It's very neutral, but you get you get a flavor of the people who are for whatever the article is about or, or against it. You know, some of the best articles that are are pulled out of publications from all over the world, instead of just focusing on the U.S. Exactly, exactly. So notice what you're describing is you know looking at multiple perspectives, mm-hmm. multiple lenses, multiple angles of telling, yes, uh, multiple cultural views. So that way, we get very different ways of interpreting messages and finding more critical, objective forms for making better decisions. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I, I've been reading is that more and more people, especially in the United States, but maybe around the world, are just listening to or just reading or just uh, hanging around people who have like-minded perspectives. People aren't taking in uh, opposing views or new concepts or, you know, new creative ideas outside of their, their box. Yes, that is exactly right. (laughs) Right. Right. People um, chained you know, metaphorically, right, to their news feed, which gives them information that is consistent with their uh, deepest held beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, algorithms that are feeding them news that they prefer with groups of people that are very like-minded. And therefore, 
uh, people are operating in silos and mm -hmm. they're not really exposing themselves to alternative points of view. And I'm not saying that you necessarily have to go to viewpoints that are completely the opposite of your own, but different angles of telling, different viewpoints, a different way of seeing uh, a news story um, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's a little bit different, uh, you know, might not be completely radically opposed to your viewpoint, but at least it's different. It's another voice. And right. That's important. Right. And just being flexible. It seems like there's such inflexibility. I think, I think being flexible is one of the most important qualities that we can uh, cultivate and and just being open to um, considering at least other ideas, being open to considering that you may not have all the facts or that you may not be right or what you believe to be true today may change as you acquire more information. Acquiring more information, uh, exactly, or as you develop as a human being, as you progress through life, as you uh, come to understand things uh, differently. I think that that's very important. I mean, the, uh, the lost art of conversation, what we are doing now. I mean, people, you know, and podcasts are fantastic, but many times people listen to podcasts because they want to participate in a conversation and for some reason they can't so they listen to people like you and me actually having a conversation so that they vicariously can be a part of a conversation that they're not a part of <laughs> i never thought of that that's interesting <laughs> i love podcasts i you know i i love just hearing people just be real talking to each other exactly i mean we're having a moment of of conversation of dialogue back and forth it's very much alive and in the moment and, and it's beautiful. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, during a time in our history, we had a lot more opportunities to engage each other in the arts of dialogue. And now more and more, we're isolated and we are communicating with each other, but we're communicated via this mediated technology that sometimes does not serve us as well as just the basics of talk did in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody's texting or messaging. And I find it's just, from my perspective, it's okay for, you know, short little things. So often, I find that the message I'm trying to get across is misinterpreted. Because you can't hear the emotion in my voice. Or as soon as I get that the other person isn't quite getting what I'm saying, I, I, I can't, I can't correct it. So I find it very, um, very frustrating because I think things can be misinterpreted really easily. Things are misinterpreted all the time. As I like to say, things are interpreted, but only 100% of the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And right. When I don't have those channels available to me, not being able to see you, not being able to see your nonverbal uh, communication, your nuances, whether or not you have a sarcastic tone in your voice or you're raising your eyebrow or tilting your head. When I don't have those cues available to me, then I'm much more likely to misinterpret your message and then get angry with you or get triggered or think uh -huh. that you're being this or being that. And that may be completely inconsistent with your intent and with your purpose, but because I don't have the appropriate cues to make those judgments. I misinterpret 
and then you and I have a misunderstanding that could have been avoided by just having a very simple conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that was a a good little thread to uh, to follow, <laughs> even though it's not specifically uh, the topic. I think I think it's important to talk about. No doubt. I mean, and that's the lovely thing about these dialogues, right? Because we're going off in very unique, unexpected trajectories. And you you invited that. I went there. Then I reciprocated. And and I think it was a wonderful moment where we just kind of went with it. And that's part of keeping it real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I love about doing the podcast. I'll, I'll hook on to something somebody says and we'll just go that way for a while. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so fake news, most of it, it or would you say all of it is is pretty much fear-based or I think that I mean, what um, why why do we have so much fake news now? What is or or what people are calling things fake news that I don't think are fake news and then um spewing out stuff that seems to be uh not true at all. Um it, it's hard to it's hard to sort it all out. It's very difficult uh, to sort out because, as you have articulated so eloquently, uh, there are <laughs> <laughs> massive instances of uh, the use of this term fake news, so much so that the term almost doesn't have any meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been like what, maybe two years? How long has it been since it's sort of come to the fore, fake news? I I think that uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's a term that has obviously been around for a long time. And in order to kind of address the issue, I have to step back for a moment. Uh, But I I think I'll step forward and then I'll step back. So one thing is I, I really think that, you know, the Trump administration has really brought the use of the term to the forefront mm-hmm. because his team is using that term to define news that they do not see as casting them in a favorable light. Okay. So the way they use fake news many times is I'm going to use fake news to uh, talk about news that casts me, me being the Trump administration, in a negative light. Therefore, if it's news that's bad about me, it's fake. And obviously, that's not what we mean inherently by fake news. Fake news, by you know, by just looking at the at the use of the term, is is deception. So news that is somehow uh, deceptive or distorted or not based on fact or made up. And that's why I like to use the term, a very different term that I'm going to introduce here, is deceptive communication. Mm -hmm. I like that. Right. Deceptive communication is message distortion with the intent of creating in someone else a belief that you know is not true. So when we talk about that definition... and we would, you, have, would you say that again, please, just for everybody? I sure. think that's a really good definition. Yeah, so deceptive communication is 
message distortion that is intended to produce in another person a belief that you know is not true. Great. Thank you. So I think that's that, really good. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. That That is essentially what we mean by lying. And lying has very important components in that definition. One component is the idea of intent, of intentionality, of motive. Therefore, mm-hmm. when I deceive, when someone deceives, they are intending with motive to create a belief in someone else that they know not to be true. So, mm-hmm. if at, right, if you look at most news, I don't think that most news stories are intending to create a belief in someone else that they know not to be true. I think most news stories are presenting evidence to the best of their limited ability with the best resources that are available. It might have a particular slant or a particular orientation or a particular lens, but I don't think that it is inherently deceptive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I so, agree. Mm-hmm. So we make a distinction here between what is used as a rhetorical strategy, as a persuasive strategy by uh, a certain administration to cast um, media outlets as deceptive so that they, the administration, can be perceived as the tellers of truth. So if I position myself as the teller of truth, then I am the person that holds the key to the dominant narrative of a nation, of news, of what is truth, And everyone else is positioned basically as the producers of deceptive communication. So therefore, that gives me alleged legitimacy and everybody else a lack of credibility, which grants me a lot of power, Mm -hmm. rhetorically, Mm -hmm. not in action. That's what I was going to say. It's a very... uh powerful position to be in. And and this isn't the all I'd like to say, even though it's it's very pronounced, this isn't the only administration that's that's done that, put out information that actually wasn't true in order to uh affect something that they want want to happen. Uh that is absolutely correct. Exactly. Throughout history we have seen um, you know, administrations, governments, uh, you know, businesses, corporations, people um of all source. But usually uh, when we talk about it and we can see it in its most pronounced forms, it is um, governments, uh, presidents, and nations that intending to create false information and many times create false information to produce fear, mm-hmm. to create panic, to create confusion. So with the creation of fear and panic and disruption and chaos, they can then behind the scenes while people are distracted, change things that will go unnoticed and thereby create the kinds of policies that they want. Hmm. So (laughs) what do we do? I mean, this is so persuasive 
um and all pervasive and and it's not just the government in the US i mean look at what's happening in in so many governments in south america and north korea all i mean all over the place um russia how as a as a, a tiny little individual on this planet um you know how do you handle that how because to me it just keeps raising our baseline stress level so that we're not handling stress very well we're not um we're not able to respond in a useful manner um we become more reactive yes well i'm going to go back to you know aristotle's classic definition he he said that there are a lot of available means of persuasion and fear appeals are one form of persuasion that can lead to simplistic thinking so we must take a stand as critical thinkers and play an active role in our daily living. We, we must for ourselves and the future of our freedom. Our challenge is to make that trek from mindless misers to mindful mavericks. And I'll repeat that one. Hmm. The trek from mindless misers to mindful mavericks. Do we want to be known as a mindless Scrooge or as a mindful rebel? Uh, mm -hmm. The journey from mindless miser to mindful maverick is the key. And also joining other people, partnering with others and forming groups, collective action. And you see that happening throughout the country, marches and protests and blogs and podcasts and um, all sorts of outlets that, you know, I don't want to plug right now because I want to keep plugging you. Um, <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Right. And all those outlets really provide uh, individuals forms of collective action to join together and partner with other people uh, to create a base of strength uh, through partnerships, through alliances that are not only good for us as individuals, but for our families and for the future of our democracy. Mm hmm. Well, that is one of the things that I've been noticing as the lemonade aspect here, that people are getting off their couches, they're they're speaking up, they're doing something rather than just sitting around going, oh, well. Exactly. People are, are getting up, people are joining marches, people are uh, contributing to campaigns, people are, um, you know, going out and forming groups, people are talking to other people, people are writing articles, people are raising funds, people are engaging in a lot of, you know, revolutionary uh, activity in the face of these challenges. And you're absolutely right. It's not just happening in the U.S. It's happening, you know, across the globe. And we're seeing it in Europe and in, in different countries. So it isn't a, a local problem that is just North American, it's a global issue. And I think that today, uh, that's one avenue uh, for collaboration, you know, and that's where technology really comes in in some very useful and productive ways. We can reach people, we can reach out to people across the globe and partner with people that we probably would not be able to partner with before and create alliances and create sources of, of information that will really lead to the kinds of changes that are going to be helpful, useful, and productive for our planet and our families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
You know, one of the things that um, that I, I find disturbing, though, is that people seem to be much more against, against this, against that, instead of, you know, I want to hear what you're for. What What is it you want? What is the change that you want? Um, you know, what don't you like? And then what is the change that you want? But it's always about this against that. And it's, it's against, against. And to me, that's just putting more energy. It's all energy, right? Whether it's want to say negative or positive, useful or unuseful, but you're putting more energy into what that is that you don't like and that you don't want instead of focusing on what you want. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I have a great story. I remember listening to um, an interview that Mother Teresa did um, years ago, and she was on this very uh, well-known uh, radio program and um, the host uh, kept on asking her if she would join him on some anti-something protest whatever anti was at that time and mother Teresa was very kind and she was saying no you know I I I I, I, I'm not, I don't participate in those things and and she was very kind and very gentle and then he you know, went back and said, well, Mother Teresa, won't you join us for this anti thing and this anti that that we're doing? Please join us, Mother Teresa. And, and she was very kind and gentle. No, you know, I really. And he kept at it and he just wasn't getting it. <laughs> and she finally turned to him and said. When you invite me. To a march for peace, I will be there. Mm hmm. Yes, it's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> all of this, it's anti, I mean, because I get all these emails and I just anti this and against that. And I'm like, oh, you got, you're off the mark, everybody. You know, what are you for? What do you want to happen? Because where you focus your attention, you know, that's where the energy goes. And, and it's like you're feeding all of this anti against all of this negative crap um, instead of feeding what it is you want to see yeah exactly and, and it's hard and it's hard initially because people don't know what they're for uh, yeah that's the problem <laughs> uh, people don't know what they're for because they are stuck in that fear-based thinking about being against Right. Being mm -hmm. in opposition to basically what they're afraid of. Right. So I'm afraid of this. And therefore, I am anti this thing that I'm afraid of, whatever that is. And, you know, I know we're speaking in general terms, but as you're hearing this, you know, uh, you know how to fill in the blank because that's the way in a way that we are that we are built and it's it's the hard work that we uh, then produce to find out what we're for if you're against something which is fine and there's nothing inherently wrong with that i think it helps to define what you're for yes. and to think yes. about what that is and put your energies toward that and in your own community in your own home with your own relationships with your own work 
And sometimes that is the only difference that, that we can make in the time being until we find a group or a cause that we can uh, join that is larger than ourselves. Many times the difference that we can make and the positive action that we can produce is within the structure of our family, within the structure of our relationships, within the structure of our loving, within the structure of what we do for work. In those day-to-day -day interactions, we can make a difference for those types of behaviors or actions that we are for. If you are for love, then be, have the courage to be loving. If you are for compassion, then have the courage to behave compassionately. If you are for uh, liberty and freedom, then behave in ways that are aligned with those values every day so that people know who you are, the value that you create, and the meaning that you bring to your experience in daily living. That was awesome, Jose. <laughs> that was perfect. I agree completely because, I mean, the, the being against something or anti-something has its purpose, but that's not what you want to focus on. You you want to do a 180 and and come up with or figure out, so what is it you're for? What is it that you want to have happen? You can't just say that um, the education system in the United States sucks. Uh, you know, how does it need to change to make it better? Exactly. You know, and, you know, and education is, is a great example. Um, sometimes, you know, in, in my profession, there are larger structures at work that, you know, I, I can't change as, as one individual. And I am very honest about that. I have no, you know, hangups about it. But when I step into my classroom, I treat my students the way that I, you know, the way that I do it, that it is aligned with my values. Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, approach them in a, in a space of honesty, in a space of integrity, in a space of openness, in a space of compassion, because those are values that I hold dear in the sanctity of that space that I have cultivated for them. So we will have discussions. We will be open. We will have flexibility. We will look at different ways of interpreting uh, messages. And I will allow that space to be cultivated, that space to be created in my classroom because I have that sphere of control. What other people are doing at other levels beyond me, you know, many times I can't control that. So I focus on the things that I can control and that way feel empowered, feel proactive, and feel that I am making moves for the purpose of social justice. Mm -hmm. That's an important message. You do have to focus on what you can control, what you personally can do, because otherwise I think it seems, it, it becomes overwhelming. It's like, what can I do? But you can, maybe in the macrocosm of things, you can't create change, but in the microcosm of your yourself personally, your family, your friends, your community, your work, that's where you can create a change. It's a huge change that is open to all of us where we can be the change that we're looking for by the decisions that we make, the behavior that we enact, and the things, the words that we speak in the presence of others. And I think that that's huge because sharing a positive message one day, uh, being affirming to another person uh, helping them, sending them a, a loving text, 
uh, you know, being supportive, validating, being honest, having a space of dialogue like we're having right now, a moment of authenticity, that can be incredibly valuable in the day, in the life of a human being. And we have the power to do that every single day. Mm -hmm. So would you say that these fear-based messages that are, are populating our airways, um, that they are contributing to an anti-against kind of uh, rhetoric as opposed to being for something? I think that the messages are uh, creating a variety of, of effects. Um, I think that for some people, it's creating this this anti-climate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, and we see this all the time, if people are engaging in very proactive actions uh, that, you know, I haven't seen recently the the number of marches that we're seeing not only in the U.S., but around the globe with millions of people pouring out into the streets to show what they are for, you know, mm-hmm. for science, mm-hmm. for uh, women's rights and for reproductive rights. Those are uh, movements that one could argue are very much for a particular uh, aspect of of social justice, ecological justice, that I think is very formidable, very powerful, and um, very affirming. So I think both things are happening. There are clearly anti-movements, but there are also very progressive, powerful um, movements that are for behaviors and actions that speak to the larger issues of social justice, not only in North America, but throughout the world. Mm -hmm. I I think I would say that before you put your energy, money, whatever, behind a movement that's anti or against, really look at that and really think about that. Because would you be better better off to put your energy and and perhaps your contributions into a movement that's for something, that's pro-something, as opposed to something that's against. And maybe something that's anti or against, you know, in some cases, maybe that is valid. I, I just see that the more energy that's put into something that's against or anti, that you are feeding that which you don't want energetically. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and it, in a way, it keeps that that movement or that energy or that process or that government or that ideology alive. Um, well really. said. I mean, that's that's why they say no uh, no news is bad news, right? Going back to going back to news, sometimes uh, companies and administrations like bad news because it keeps them in the news. So one of the frustrating things about the anti-movement is that it keeps the source of that movement in the news. You know, the, the Trump administration, notice how, how clever they are and how 
uh, sophisticated uh, they are in keeping themselves in the news. Mm-hmm. They're always in the news. And so it keeps their message, their implicit or explicit message at the forefront of consciousness. And we've come to expect that every day. Exactly. Oh, what's the next thing? Oh, mm-hmm. what's Trump doing next? And what's happening implicitly, you know, at least when we talk about the deep structure of language, is that um, that message is uh, permeating our consciousness, and there really is no alternative unless you create it, unless you create it by talking about something different, by focusing on other issues by deconstructing the messages and thinking about it in different ways, which is what we're doing right now. You know, we're addressing that message and we're we're speaking about it, but notice we're not focusing on, on anti this or anti that. We're focusing on understanding the features of these messages, looking at our relationship to it and finding ways to creatively adapt so that we can find out or we can discover what we are for so that we can make the choices that are most helpful, useful, enlightened, and mindful. Right. So how can we adapt? How can we manage uh, the fear that these f- fear-based messages produce? What, what should we do? So there are a variety of things that we can do, and we've touched on, on some of them throughout, mm-hmm. the, um, throughout our conversation. Um, and I'm going to go back to, you know, a, a term that we've heard uh, so much about in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, which is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and mindfulness is a very powerful strategy that we have used. It's not just connected with meditation, but it's a it's a very simple. Um, I'm going to talk about a, a very simple four step process where we first pause. So I like to just hit the pause button. Wait a minute. I just heard something. I just saw something. Let me just pause. And by pausing, I'm not allowing myself to react. Instead, I'm giving myself time to respond, which is very different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And then after I pause, I breathe. Right. Just breathe. Because when we're afraid, one of the first things that we do is we stop breathing. Right. So we pause, we breathe, I take a deep breath, and I allow the breath to calm the body and allow my mind and nervous system to create some distance for a moment with the feeling that is arising, right? So I breathe, and then I reflect. I go, hmm, what is this? What's going on? What is this about? What am I feeling? And by asking myself those very basic questions, I allow myself to reflect and consider what is happening in this situation. Mm-hmm. And then the last step is to choose. Choose what am I going to do? What's the best choice? What might be most useful, help? productive, preferable. And notice, I'm not talking about right and wrong. I'm talking about what might be most useful, what might be most helpful, what might be most preferable, what might be the most loving thing that I could do right now, what might be the most 
joyful thing that I might do right now and then make a choice in that direction. Okay. Mm -hmm. So to recap, you know, pause, breathe, reflect and choose so that those conscious choices, those helpful choices, those productive choices are aligned with what you are for and not what you're against. Awesome. I'm writing this down also because I'm going to put it on the website. Jose, this has been incredibly informative and useful. I'm really grateful that you've, uh, that you're doing this work in the first place and that you're sharing it with us. Um, I thought perhaps a nice way to wrap up might be with sharing some of the ways that our listeners can take this information and incorporate it into their lives. Well, thank you, uh, Janine. It's been such a wonderful space here with you, and I uh, feel very grateful and very blessed to have had this opportunity to enter into a very authentic dialogue about these issues uh, in our lives. So one uh, thing that I could speak to is this idea that the truth is that perceptions based on fear are many times inconsistent with reality. Mm-hmm. The truth is that fear is many times inconsistent with reality. That is, the fear is not real. So there's a nice acronym, FEAR, F-E-A-R, can stand for false evidence appearing real, mm-hmm. right? is for false, the E is for evidence, the A is for appearing, and the R is for real, false evidence appearing real. So in light of that, what can we do to deal with this false evidence that is appearing real? And that's where the four steps of mindfulness are very helpful. Number one, pause. Hit the pause button. Two, breathe, take a breath, chill for a moment or two, and reflect what's going on here, what's happening, what is this emotion, is this real, is this accurate, is this helpful, is this not helpful, is this true? And then number four, choose, make a deliberate choice. Make a thoughtful choice. What might be most useful for you? What might be most helpful? What might be most productive? And whatever that means for you. Mm-hmm. And let us use that strategy so that we don't give in to fear but we make mindful choices that are useful, helpful, healthy, and preferable for ourselves, our families, and our future. What an awesome positive note to end on. Thank you. I love your work and what you're doing. Do you have a a website or a way that people 
might be able to uh, connect with you if they would like to? Well, it, thank you for asking. I um, am in the process of developing a website, uh, but I am on Twitter mm -hmm. and my Twitter handle is Prof J Rodriguez and then the number one. So Prof J Rodriguez and then the number one. So, you know, I have a very common last name, so I had to work out a uh, quite <laughs> elaborate strategy to create a unique uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, okay. Prof J Rodriguez 1. Okay. Any other way that uh, people can get a hold of you, or is Twitter the best? Twitter's probably the, the best option now. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jose. I really, really appreciate this. It's been fun. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too. And I'd love to have you on the podcast again sometime. We'll talk about another subject. Oh, it would be my pleasure. You're a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.